You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. As many of you know, most of us here at the Master Photography Podcast are huge fans of Squarespace, and that's because they make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling prints or products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. So head on over to squarespace.com improve for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code improve to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I'm your host, Jeff Harmon, and I I have got with me today at the roundtable a real hero of mine, uh, Don Kamaretka. And uh, I'm I'm so glad, Don, that you you were able to join me on short notice today. None of my fellow roundtablers were able to make it in their schedule today to join me. So thank you for for being uh, able to join me at such short notice. I'm thrilled to be here. Anytime uh, you want my voice, my opinion, I'm always happy to loan it to you. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Uh, And, you know, the topics, I guess maybe I did decide the topics after I found out that I was going to be able to have you be on the show. So there are topics that I think are going to, you know, you are so well suited to to be able to address. And so for for those of you who don't know Don, I I do have to introduce you. Uh, We did a a, a photo taco episode. So that's the other podcast I work on. And, um, And I had Don on and we talked about DPI. And so if anyone wants to learn about DPI, go check out that episode. We went through it in a lot of detail. And and Don, I got a lot of feedback saying that people finally understood DPI out of that. So wow, that's a a huge accomplishment because I've explained it to people and then the next week they don't understand it. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. So so it's great. That was a really fun episode and and I'm so glad to have you. And we're going to plan some more to have you come on the the Photo Taco podcast too. But um, so for the, the Listeners here who maybe don't go to Photo Taco and, and didn't know Don before, uh, he's kind of uh, the best description I think I have for you, Don, Don, is you're a mad scientist with a camera. Yes, uh, I'll embrace that. That's perfect. (laughs) Uh, He does some really incredible things with the camera, stuff I really wish I had time to do. Um, Don gets to do the things I I wish I had time for. And uh, he's doing stuff that like very few people on the planet are doing. It's it's really fun to hear hear Don talk about this stuff. He's probably most well known for as a snowflake photographer. Uh, But the work I love the very most isn't any photos you're producing. It's your podcast. It's Photo Geek Weekly is a podcast that Don does and and uh, I just absolutely love it. It's it's really fun. I, I have about 18 different podcasts that I try to listen to. And I get behind on a lot of them. But Photo Geek Weekly is not one I get behind on. So I really awesome. like that show. Uh, well, and we try very hard with that show to uh, dig under the hood for topics that other people are talking about and finding a different angle to discuss right. it. Or finding things that are geeky, sciencey, directly photography related, um, limit pushing stuff. That honestly, it's just so much fun to think about what the possibilities are because the photographic landscape is changing so quickly in so many different ways um, that it's going to be, you know, five years from now, the definition of photography will probably change. It's that fundamental of a shift that we're going through right now. So it's fun to ride that wave. Yeah, yeah. We, we have all the mirrorless stuff that's happening. It's going to change the world. But 
We even have the, our first topic today. So great segue there, Don. Our first topic today is something that might be that sort of a game changer. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm really interested to talk about it. And we're going to talk about a phone, only it's not the phone everyone might be expecting. <laughs> today, <laughs> as we record this episode, uh, Apple is unveiling their next generation iPhone here in September 2018. And we're not talking about it at all. This is a phone that's from Red. And that's the camera manufacturer. They produce really high-end and really expensive cameras. And they have now produced a phone as well. It's called the Hydrogen One. And I have heard, Don, I've heard you gush about this phone for a very long time. Uh, I'm gushing about it even though I didn't even have it. Yeah, I was just yeah. loving it on paper. Right, right. And it, So it's an Android phone, but it has a super unique feature in a holographic display. Uh, there were two pre-order models that they offered, one called Aluminum for $1,200 and the other one Titanium for $1,600. And I had never heard of this until I heard you mention on your podcast, Don. But I want to know, first off, how you even found out about this thing because I just didn't see any news about it anywhere else. And what made you decide to commit to it over, I think you, you were using an iPhone previously, right? Yeah, and you know what? I think a phone is a, a longer-term investment than getting a new one every single time another right, one comes right. out. Uh, my previous phone was an iPhone 6, for example, because they're just evolutionary upgrades. It's yeah. not going to be a huge game-changer. You've got the iPhone 10. Are you going to go out and get the iPhone 10s? Well, maybe, but that's not an effective use of your time and money, in my opinion. And so many people are going to backlash about that. But skip a generation or two until the features become a little bit more revolutionary um, changing the way that you'll use the device. And I don't remember exactly where I heard about it. It was on one of the uh, the photo blogs that uh, post content really fast, like F-stoppers or something, where right. if you miss it on a day, uh, you know, you might not see it again. And I was hooked. As soon as I learned what they were trying to do, Partly because, I have to backtrack a little bit, I have been toying around with 3D photography for a number of years now. And uh, I even have like an antique stereoscope that's over 150 years old, and I can put my own images into that and see them in 3D. It's a lot of fun. I learned to cross my eyes to see things in 3D. (laughs) But you know, those are barriers to entry. Right. We, yeah, right. You have to have like an antique stereoscope or cross your eyes or wear some silly glasses. That means it's very difficult for you to share that wow factor. Uh, I was at an art show recently. Uh, the only one that I do in the summertime, exhausting weekend. But I brought that stereoscope and some of my images on cards. People were swearing with delight. It's not often <laughs> that you get people, uh, you know, you know, speaking curse words because they're happy about what they're seeing. Um, but the 3D environment can actually do that. Um, And you might be thinking, well, you know, I'll see it, uh, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And you will. Still with this device, though, it's going to be difficult to market because you can't shoot a video of it. You can't do a press conference of it that you can watch from afar. You've got to have it in your hands in in order to really see it. So let's describe what this is. Um, It is a screen that requiring no glasses or accoutrements whatsoever will allow you to see in three dimensions. Um, And it will not just be a 3D display. When uh, when you move the phone from side to side or the phone is static and you move your head from side to side, you will see the 3D subject from different angles, hence being holographic in nature. and it came with a little demo video and, uh, and a bunch of, uh, of extra videos and stuff that you can download in a preliminary store right now. Um, and uh, it's all really powerful, really cool. Uh, I got an early access model uh, called a Houdini model. 
because they are a little bit behind in their production schedule, being the first phone that they've ever made. Uh, the uh, the head of uh, of Red, uh, uh, Jim Gennard, uh, you know, publicly said, "I mean, we have no idea what the hell we're doing. I mean, we've, never, <laughs> we've never done this before. We know we're going to make something amazing. Just stick with us." And that was the exact same attitude he had when he started Oakley Sunglasses, and then again when he started Red Cameras. And so he is a serial entrepreneur that is behind this, uh, and he's had successes in the face of uh, some quite strong criticism many, many times in the past. And so here we are. They've got certification. The hardware that I have is final, but the software is continually being updated uh-huh. with um, uh, new, uh, you know, fixing uh, little glitches, improving processing, etc. So when it's going to roll out a little bit later this year, uh, I believe in the November time frame is the carrier launch. That's when everything is going to be smoother and even more polished. But even as a first flush right now, I brought it to a camera club I was speaking at a couple of days ago nearby, and I was showing it to people, and they were saying, this this is a game changer. This is wow. Uh, this is impressive beyond just looking at, oh, well, that's a great new OLED display on your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, this, to me, is uh, is a step in an entirely new direction for the uh, not only camera manufacturers, but for cell phone manufacturers combined. And with the Red Ingenuity, what they're uh, and we don't have solid details on this yet, um, but there is a port on the back of the phone, and that port uh, is I don't even know how many pins, but it's like three rows of pins, and uh, that's for add-on modules. So the cameras that are built into this phone, uh, the the rear cameras, it has. Two two 12 megapixel cameras don't know too much exactly on the specs beyond that mm-hmm. uh, and that's how it can record a stereo image um, but that add-on module you could get a cinema quality red sensor for 2d or 3d they've said that there's uh, battery modules and other uh, accessories that will be compatible with this as well so it's not just a phone they call it a media machine and it, it's going to live up to that name and it's not that expensive compared to what the red hardware otherwise would be in right. terms of their uh, their main camera bodies. It's a little more expensive, of course, than uh, you know your flagship iPhone. But I think the difference is well worth it. Right, That's, it's not much different. Well, no, and I, I, this is the device um, that I think is going to change 3D for the better. Um, 3D TVs came and went because we never got past the glasses. Yeah, that glasses. to get past the glasses at that era was just about to mature and then nobody was buying them anymore. So the research and development just kind of stagnated. But what if it was ubiquitous that every smartphone had a 3D display and that everybody was doing FaceTime in 3D uh, and that all of our communications was 3D at that point. Facebook has already signed on to be able to support their new file format called H4V uh, to display this kind of content natively in Facebook uh, if you're browsing on a device that has a screen compatible. And... uh, my first impression of the 3D effect, it's really good. Um, it's not perfect, though. And uh, and so there's a few caveats to be made here. Number one is it tries to do a holographic kind of um, rendering using only two lenses that are placed fairly close together. So it has to interpolate data and guess and it's doing that on a cell phone in real time for video purposes. And so it's going to be guessing incorrectly some of the time. Uh, I noticed I had some uh, vertical lines in one image. They were uh, posts of a railing in my living room. And uh, it was kind of acting a little bit right. funnier 
those. Yeah. That that can be trained. That the software can be improved over time. And that's that's not a hardware thing. That's just interpreting the data. And so as the polish goes on, that stuff will smooth out. Um, an interesting point of uh, um, just an observation, really, on the back of the phone, the two main cameras um, and the two front ones, they're spaced very, very close together. So in order to get a sort of a human perception of um, uh, of 3D, you have to consider what the human pupil distance is, the distance between the pupils of our two eyes, which is much greater yeah, than right. the inch, maybe inch and a bit, uh, of the two cameras on the back of this, uh, of this phone. And it's an even smaller distance on the front. So that means the 3d effect is going to be less pronounced initially. Um, similar to Panasonic had rolled out with their Lumix cameras, um, when they were introducing the G, uh, the G line, um, the, uh, 12.5 millimeter stereo camera, um, they couldn't space them out very, very far because you're limited by the size of the sensor and thereby the stereoscopic effect was limited for that. I've used that uh, that camera or that lens and I've compared it to some of the images taken with this and the images on the red hydrogen are much better. So they're a computa a computationally enhancing that depth by whatever means they're doing, whatever secret sauce is under the hood and, uh, and that's working well for them. Uh, I would like to see an add-on module where the 3D cinema uh, did have the proper pupil distance or maybe because they're really pushing this, um, this holographic tech, maybe it's not going to be two lenses. Maybe it'll be four or six or however many. Uh, and maybe you could link different devices together to increase the points of uh, different perspectives and create a true holographic video or photo of a subject that you're looking at. It brings it to life in a way that, um, unless you're like looking through, uh, I can't even really make a comparison. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have like a, um, uh, a Viewmaster on steroids. It was designed to hold uh, six by six centimeter medium format slides uh, shot in stereo. And that is the best 3D uh, viewing experience I've ever had. This is on par with that. Wow. So, um, have you put I'm any of your own stuff on there yet? See, now this is a sticking point for me too. Uh, as an early adopter, their software to convert existing 3D stuff isn't out yet. Uh, okay. uh, I know some people have it because you've got converted content in demo reels and what have uh -huh, you, sure. but it's not available to me yet. So um, <laughs> I, can, I can use the cameras on it and I can create content on the device, but I can't yet port my existing stuff over. I was hoping that um, they would be able to read the MPO file format, which is how you could view 3D images on a 3D TV. I tried. It doesn't recognize them, uh -huh. at least not yet. Again, right. uh, the software is unfinalized on this device, so I can't really you know, beat it up about that. Uh, carrier release is still months away, and right. by then all of these things will be in place. Right. Oh, man, that sounds so fun and exciting. Okay, so now we've gone through a little bit of, of what is involved with this phone. They're trying something so new and, and I agree with you. This is a it's a potential game changer. This is something that that could be a, a really, really big deal. Do you expect that holographic displays are going to be something that are going to come to Apple and Google phones and be kind of a standard feature going forward? I would love to see that, and there's a few reasons why it might happen. Uh, number one, the screen technology is not red proprietary. They're licensing it from a company called Leia, uh, named after the Star Wars hologram reference okay, with R2-D2. Okay. Um, but Leia, as a, as a company, I think red might have uh, some stake in them sure. at this point, but that's it's a, it's a licensable technology. Uh -huh. And so anybody that wants to say, uh, well, red's 
these things from Red are selling like hotcakes. Um, and people looking at a phone on display in uh, in any uh uh, phone store, they're going to see that and they're going to say, yes, that that tech is amazing. Uh, I want to walk home with that. So why aren't our phones able to do that? I also have to reiterate the 2D display is exceptional. Hmm. It is. Uh, I mean, it's I mean, I'm coming from an iPhone six, but I have held <laughs> the, the, the latest and greatest phones. And this is really, really beautiful. Um, I love the color rendition. Uh, it, it can get incredibly bright, incredibly dim, and it still holds together very nicely. Um, when it switches into 3D display, two things happen. Number one, the two dimensional resolution goes down uh, and the brightness goes down just a little bit. Okay. So it because the 2D um, resolution goes down, you can tell something different is going on. It doesn't just immediately become uh, more deep in, in the content display. Uh, you can tell a mode is switching from one to the other, but that's just how the tech has to work. So uh, I've been pretty happy with, uh, with how that transition goes. And you know, I've just got a bunch of pictures of my daughter on swings and playground equipment. And you can absolutely see the depth shift from the foreground to the background and everything else interacting so beautifully in that. Uh, and I showed that to uh, some family members the other day and they just, they couldn't say anything. They're like, wow. <laughs> right. Uh, Okay. Like that, so that, that becomes really useful moving forward, too, because if I'm generating this kind of content now, um, who knows what screens will be able to display it even better in the future, too. Right, so right. to be creating this content with every image that I create, it's only going to pay dividends forward. Sure. Okay. So yeah, let's hope. Let's hope that it's there. The build quality of the phone itself, it looked like, you know, from the images I could see, it looked like it was going to be super super stellar is that how is that it's a tank uh i mean it's so heavy and i love it um (laughs) you know uh, partly because if i was going to get a big phone you know we had uh, the bend gate issue with the uh, the iphones and uh and whatever else you know not really holding up to their size i didn't want to phone this big for the longest time because something this big with nice smooth edges all over the place that's going to slip out of my hands so easy i just that was just a, a a cautionary deterrent i didn't want to drop something like this. This phone has uh, ridges on the edges that have little dips inside them for your fingers to hold it nice and tight perfectly. It's not going to fall out of my hands no matter how I'm shaking it about. Um, And that flies in the face of cell phone designs right now because it is an anachronism in the sense that this device, I'm just hitting the the thumb sensor on the side accidentally and it uh, turned on the screen, (laughs) but uh, the the, the phone itself, it's, it's the best built device that I think that I've held in terms of a mobile phone uh, for something of this size. Now, I'm also used to working with big, beefy cameras and things right, like that. Right, right. So I'm no stranger to having uh, having something uh, bigger than the norm in terms of what, uh, what what a communication device or an image capture device would be. But uh, I don't know. I, am I singing its praises too much? I mean, it's so early. <laughs> I, I haven't had it for that long. Yeah. Uh, I, I've only had it for about a week. Um, and I'm coming from Apple. So my transition to Android has also been, um, I mean, haphazard, but that's just me not spending a day dedicated to figuring out all of the, uh, the differences and eccentricities that I got used to on the iPhone that are done better here, but different. And I have to adapt to it. Um, so it's, uh, it's turning into uh, a little love affair, I think with this phone. Any sense for how well they're going to be able to keep on the latest Android version? 
Well, it's 8.1 Oreo right now. Uh-huh. Uh, and if they're constantly updating and keeping up to date, uh, I have no reason to think that they'll fall behind. I mean, I don't know if any uh, phones are actively updating to Android 9, uh, which is Pi, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, some phones might be shipping with it. I know that the, the Google-specific devices, um, uh, their flagships have it, but uh, we'll see a rollout here, I'm certain. Um, if they're up to date now, there's no reason for them not to be. They seem like a company that'll stay well on that ball. Sure, yeah. Okay, so now the last thing here. What do you think it means for like photography in general? Do you think we're headed to a place where photographers are going to really have to pay attention to stereoscopic imaging and they're going to they're going to need to uh, play around with this ahead of maybe this becoming more mainstream and get used to it? I, well, I'm riding the wave right now, and if this thing does take off, then I'm I'm at the the peak of that wave, and I'm I'm happy. But um, look at other phone manufacturers that uh, we hear whispers of prototypes of you know five and seven uh, camera phones that are arranged in circles for whatever right. reason. Maybe it's for computational photography. Maybe if some have similar focal lengths, then you can do stereo imagery with that. It's just putting it together in the right way. Um, so the devices are becoming increasingly capable of producing something like this uh, computation photography. I was just watching part of the um, uh, the Apple conference. I know we're not talking about that specifically, <laughs> but but they were they were talking quite heavily when they were talking about their cameras um, about how they can blur the background very effectively right. and uh, and how they you know have this smart HDR tech and uh, blah blah blah. Um, that it's all using uh, math and computational power to improve the quality of our images. Um, and that's it's been a road we've been on for a long right, time. Right. And it's a road that we're just going to continue down. The fork in the road is when you say, okay, well, it's not just 2D, it's 3D. Uh, and how do we make 3D better? How do we make it more accessible? How do we make it more enjoyable? There's a photo that I had taken on a photo walk in Toronto. Uh, was it two years ago now? And I had done it with a, an antique stereo camera from like 1926. And that was one of the images that I put in that uh, Viewmaster on steroids device. Uh-huh. And when I look at that image, it feels like I'm right back there with my friends having a great time. Um, it's it's not like I'm distant from that, like a photograph is a memory. It feels like I'm right there again. Um, and to have that feeling in photography, especially if you're dealing with portraiture, you're dealing with weddings, you want somebody to remember their wedding day uh, in far more depth and detail as if they're reliving it, then if it was shot in stereo and viewed on a stereo device, then that's going to make a huge difference. It's going to be a game changer. It just has to hit uh, not really critical mass. It has to just get momentum. And as soon as it starts getting momentum, I don't think it will lose it. Have you played around with doing stereoscopic with like more modern cameras? Oh, yeah. I've got a bunch of stereoscopic lenses um, that uh, they're designed. The ones that I have here are designed by a company in the Netherlands, and they have two lenses inside the same barrel that split the image in half when it gets to the, okay. the image sensor on the back. Uh, half the sensor for the left eye, half for the right eye. And there's free software out there uh, called uh, Stereo Photo Maker that will help you process if there's any alignment issues and, and make sure that you get the best results. Um, and uh, that I've been doing on uh, Canon full frame bodies, and uh, I've got that uh, Panasonic Lumix lens that I modified for macro photography to increase its uh, stereo presence there as well. And it performs nicely. So on modern cameras, you can absolutely do this kind of stuff. And imagine if you can do 4K video using the entire sensor, uh, then you can break that down to roughly 1080p per eye uh, and do stereo video as well. Sure. Yeah. 
So the other, I've seen it done. Uh, there was a conference a little bit ago that I went to where there was a, a guy there who had, he had two separate cameras mounted on, on, uh, a homemade, a DIY thing to, to help with this too. And he was trying to get anyone who was, who would say hi to him <laughs> to, <laughs> to take a look at the photos that were being produced out of it. And it was really cool stuff. Um, but he had two different cameras. Is there an advantage, do you think, because you get the whole sensor in that way to have the two cameras mounted there at the pupil distance apart to, to taking the photos versus the lens that splits it? Right. So there's there's another way to do it, too, called a beam splitter, where uh, you take some uh, first surface mirrors and you can split an image out to be further away using mirrors that then would reflect uh-huh, in back right. towards the main sensor. Um, and uh, those have some limited use. There's a company out there now uh, making a very large one for digital SLRs called Kula, K-U-L-A. And the Kula Deeper is a big one. They make a small one for smartphones as a little clip on as well. So even with your existing hardware, you can start to experiment with this stuff. Again, it makes a lot more sense when you can shoot it and see it right. in 3D on the same device. Uh, that sense of immediate feedback uh, is really useful for the creative process and uh, to figure out how you compose in 3D. Because 3D compositions are much different than 2D. Depth plays a huge role in how you put an image together uh, and it requires slightly different thinking to that end as well. Um, having two separate cameras, if you want to get the people distance apart and you want to shoot like the highest quality imagery, then yes, two cameras with linked lenses and everything can work. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of tricky. I mean, how do you make sure that the focus is exactly the same, yeah, that both right. are being triggered at exactly the same time? You can rig up a trigger to fire two cameras at once, um, but focus in everything else, exposure being slightly off from one to the other, yep. um, especially if you're in a run-and-gun kind of scenario, you'd want to have a purpose-built device. And it looks like RED is manufacturing that not only for this phone, but they've said that their professional uh, cinema camera lineup they will be uh, introducing uh, stereoscopic capable cameras to that lineup as well. They are diving in the deep end here uh, without really even testing the water first. They are so sure of what they're after. Awesome. Well, it's it's really fun. It's incredible technology. I, I love it that we have a company pushing forward something that no one else is doing. That's that's really great with the phone here. And let's hope that it uh, catches on. Let's hope. Well, I, I will say that HTC tried to roll out a, a, a no glasses required uh, stereo 3D phone a couple of years ago, anyhow. Okay. Um, but it used lenticular display technology, which is so poor in comparison. Um, it, it's not even the same thing. Uh, you know, it's it's like a, a tricycle compared to a motorcycle uh, when, when you see what this thing can do and how it performs. Um, especially, again, once the software gets better and uh, and the, and, and that'll happen this year. Uh, in fact, I've had two um, uh, system updates to this phone since I've got it already. Week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're they're working on this like nonstop, twenty four seven. So maybe I'll uh, chime back in a little bit later in the year and uh, and see how things have changed. Yeah, that would be fun. We'll have to do that. We'll have to make sure that happens. All right. Well, I think we've uh, put that topic to bed. And so in the second half of the show here, we're going to go th- over. Uh, something a little less, well, maybe it's a little less technical. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> With me, it always ends up being technical. And, and I think, Don, you're going to trend that way as well. But, <laughs> but first, we're going we're gonna to take a brief, a little break here and thank the sponsor of this episode. 
Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace, just like most of us here at Master Photography. We love Squarespace, and that's because they make it easier than ever to launch your passion project. So whether you're looking to start a new photo business, showcase your portfolio, publish blog posts, sell products or prints, or whatever it is you want to do, Squarespace is the tool for you. They have beautiful templates that were created by world-class designers, and you have the ability to customize those templates with just a few clicks, so you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace also has a powerful e-commerce tool that lets you sell anything online, and they have analytics that will help you grow your site in real time. And the best part, in my opinion, is that everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box, so you don't have to spend time building a second mobile website for SEO purposes. Buying domains through Squarespace is simple, and you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. So head on over to squarespace.com slash improve for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code improve to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash improve offer code improve. Okay. So Don, I'm, I'm again, so glad you were able to join me on this episode because there's an article that was uh, published by our friends over at Petapixel recently, and um, I think it's right up your alley again. Uh, you know, so as a hobbyist photographer, that's what I do. I, I don't do this professionally. My day job is, is something entirely different. Um, my budget for photography gear is really limited. It's, <laughs> it's very, very small. I have to get it through the finance committee here at the Harmon House, and <laughs> that's not easy to do, When uh, especially because the, the least expensive of that stuff I've already got. So now all that's left is the stuff that's going to really take some funds to, <laughs> to get there. And uh, so I, I really appreciate when I can find a really good DIY kind of solution to any kind of photography thing. I want to go jump on it and, and uh, see if I can make it happen. And so it, was, it piqued my interest because of that, because this is a DIY solution that Petapixel uh, brought light to, um, and it turned out it was a so the solution is for white balance, and it turned out that it was actually a, a pretty dated source that Petapixel was kind of republishing the information from. Uh, a company called Libra was the one that uh, that originally published this whole idea, and uh, they did it back in 2016, and. We've talked about white balance a lot here on the Master Photography Podcast. There seems to be a pretty big spectrum of people, and it seems to be kind of a, a polarizing sort of approach that photographers have had. Some of them, they uh, they put the camera in white balance, and they figure, I'm just, I'm just going to fix it in post. There's no reason for me to even stress out about this. I'm not going to worry about it. The camera does a decent job of guessing what the, auto, what the white balance should be, and even when it's wrong, it's really trivial to go and change it in post, and that's how they approach it. Others... They seem to be like on a never-ending quest of like, I, I want to make sure I nail it in the camera. And they've tried all kinds of devices to, to help them with this. Some do it just based on like a, you know, a chart or a experience in different lighting situations. And they go, they know based on just what the environment looks like, what Kelvin setting they're going to put into the camera. Others, they, they put a target in the scene, like a white balance card or a pop-up or an X-Rite board, something like that, a commercial product that they've bought. Um, some other 
others have gone the way of attaching something to the camera, like an expo disc. And there's lots of ways to approach this. There seems to be a, a lot of people that feel like the, those that are going so extreme on this, it's, it's wasted effort, wasted brain power, <laughs> wasted approach. Um, and the others are saying, well, you just don't want to get it right in camera and, um, and it's better to get it right in camera. So Don, first off, tell me where on that spectrum you are with white balance. Okay, well, I do a lot of nature photography, a lot of macro photography, where I'm playing with vibrant colors that are real, but they don't necessarily have to be pinpoint accurate. In some cases, like when you've got green foliage, you want that green to have its proper color. If it's too uh, oversaturated, it might turn into something that looks neon or too turquoise. It doesn't feel real. Um, And so like the green on somebody's lawn is actually like it's uh, if that's not accurate and white balance will control that, of course. Um, Uh, other settings can too, then the image just feels manipulated in some way, even if it's just the white balance that has been set to the wrong setting. So um, how do I typically control white balance? Um, Because my subjects are not critical to white balance, I'm not worrying about skin tones. I'm not doing product photography where I have to match a specific Pantone. It's not as critical. That said, uh, when I'm shooting video and I can't fix it in post as easy right, because right. it's not raw data right. um, and it's often much more compressed than a, than a JPEG out of the camera would be, making changes like that after the fact uh, are far more difficult. And so you want to make sure that you are at least on target. So uh, X-Rite is technically a sponsor of mine. I'm one of their Colorado, but... Um, you know, I, and, I, and I've got some other targets and I've got some other printer calibrators because when I print, color right. calibration has to, like what I see on the screen has to match what to, yeah. comes out of the right. printer. Right. Um, and, and that's critical because if that's wrong, well, you can't fix it after it's printed. You just have to waste money and do it again. Right. Um, so color accuracy is of some you know extreme importance to me. Um, but uh, in order to get proper white balance, there are so many ways to do it. Uh, the one that we're talking about, I don't know if we mentioned it, actually. Uh, we mentioned uh, DIY technique. It's to take that plumber's tape, the uh, the stuff that you'd wrap to seal around a pipe, yep. and wrap that around uh, just a, a, a eraser and just those white erasers. So this will allow you to have something that'll fit in your pocket or your camera bag that you can whip out, and it uh, it purports to be a fairly accurate white balance target, except that it isn't. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because I went out and I tested this today. I knew I was gonna that this was gonna be a topic, so I bought a roll of the stuff and I shined an ultraviolet flashlight on it, and. it's not spectrally neutral. What that means is it fluoresces under ultraviolet light. The same thing as a white piece of paper, most clothing, um, a lot of cheap uh, uh, paper for printers and things like that. Um, they have optical brightening agents in them that take ultraviolet light and fluoresce it back into the visible spectrum to make it look whiter and brighter than it would be uh, than if it was just reflecting uh, the visible spectrum of light. What that means is colors can skew when uh, when you have an ultraviolet component to the light source, like sunlight, which does, of course, contain ultraviolet light. Incandescent bulbs, I believe, also do too. So um, if you've got UV light and it's fluorescing, it's not just metering or measuring what the visible light is. It's measuring the visible light plus whatever the ultraviolet light is doing to fluoresce into the mix there and thereby making it inaccurate from one scene to the next based on conditions. It doesn't fluoresce a lot. But it does. And so if you want it to be perfectly accurate, if you want to be accurate enough to be carrying around a device 
how big or small or at whatever expense to be measuring your white balance properly, you kind of want it to be done properly. Right. Um, so in, in that sense, I'm thinking, well, what would I do if I, if I needed to properly white balance something every time? Well, I don't think X-Red actually offers this, but it would be a, an interesting uh, concept to have somebody like them because I've got their um, uh, their color checker passport. When right. I shine my ultraviolet light on that, it is spectrally neutral. It doesn't give a response. It only responds to the visible spectrum, which is what you'd need. Well, what if I could get just a, a round sticker somewhere in the gray color? By the way, white balance doesn't need to be metered by something that's white. It needs to be metered on something that has no color. Um, and that's a common misconception as right. well. Uh, right. So a, a, a mid-gray colored circular sticker that I can stick on the inside of my lens cap. Uh, so when I take it off, I immediately have a white balance target right there, uh, perfectly, you know, if it can be spectrally neutral, there's a market to have a device like that, a sticker that you could buy for a couple of bucks that the manufacturer would spend pennies on to make and they'd make a killing on it. Uh So that's what I want to see. And maybe I should go out and take my ultraviolet light on all manner of paper and stuff and see what doesn't fluoresce and grab that and market that myself. (laughs) The dumb Kamarishka white balance target. <laughs> the exactly. Don Com, right? The Don Com white balance target. I, I, I'm all for it, but, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, though, it is important that people have the right tools to do the job. Um, and you know, if you if you try to um, take a photograph under compact fluorescent bulbs, for example, um, CFLs only emit about half of the visible spectrum. There's huge gaps missing in it. Our eyes do a wonderful job at averaging that out. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we average it out to white. But what if I'm wearing an orange shirt, but the, uh, the white balance uh, it can't properly uh, get the right color because the light source isn't emitting the proper wavelength of right, light right. that is the primary focus of the color of that shirt. And thereby, no matter how well you set a neutral color tone, colors won't necessarily be accurate in that scenario. Uh, and that's why you've got the color checkers with all of the different color targets, and they can somewhat and it. They can improve things, but it's not as good as having a proper light source to begin with. Um, so a PSA to any photographer listening that has compact fluorescent bulbs in their house, replace them with LEDs already. <laughs> <laughs> the govern- the, a lot of state governments here in the U.S. want that anyway, so, so they, there's going to be a lot of that done. Okay, so, so you've tested this out. It, it does fluoresce. And, can and the one that I tested fluoresced, sure. the one that they tested in that article might be from a different manufacturer, right. made from something different. I can't, uh, I can't say it's a universal thing. Right. Okay. So, and they were setting out to solve, the, to them, the commercial targets that were available had three challenges. And they were kind of setting out to solve that and see if they could do it with DIY. That, like that was the two stated purposes. I want DIY that's inexpensive and I need to find, I need to solve some of the problems. So the solutions on the market being expensive was the first problem they had with the commercial targets. The second one was some of them, I, they said many, but I'm, I'm not sure I agree here. Some of them are delicate to handle. They, they don't wear well. They get ruined in your bag. They get ruined as you use them and you got you to gotta buy them again or, or destroying them too easily. 
I, I can see that for something that doesn't have like a clamshell case. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the ones designed like the Color Checker SG from X-Rite, it, it, it's, it's a sheet with all the proper color patches and everything on it. And it's very good. But don't ever put that in your camera bag. It's right. designed for studio use. It'll get, yeah, it'll um, get and that's what it's designed for. That's why they made the Color Checker Passport, which has a like, um, if you look at mine, it is scratched and dinged to hell. Um, but inside, it's perfect because yeah. I don't leave it unfolded in my camera bag. <laughs> okay. And then the last one, and this one I have struggled with is getting it set up in the shot correctly so that it's the reading can be can you can get a good reading because it really does need to be perpendicular to your camera to have that work right it, yeah well and then then we're getting into a lot of minutiae about uh, how how accurate it's going to be sure, how, sure. depending on you put it closer to the camera the light closer to the camera might not be the light that's far away right right, it's right far away you want to zoom in on it to get a better look at it but then that's going to change the properties of the lens um you know okay enough's enough uh, if you are 99% accurate, that extra 1% is what everybody else is fussing about. Uh, <laughs> right. And if your client is going to pay you an exorbitant fee to worry about that 1%, I'm happy for you. The rest of the world doesn't care. <laughs> right. Okay. So <laughs> even though it does, and even though this thing might not be perfect, uh, especially compared to the commercial targets that are not going to have the fluoresce problem, is it good enough? Well, it, it depends. Uh, is the car that you're currently driving good enough for you? I mean, uh, do, do you always want a better one? Do you want more fuel efficiency? Do you want something faster and better? But is it going to cost you money? Right, right. So if it works for you and you're content that it is doing a good enough job, then it is. But it's all a state of mind at that point. So uh, I would say that, that the, the fluorescing component aside, which typically uh, will sway colors a little bit more towards blue. Uh, uh -huh, so uh -huh. maybe you can even make a mental note of that and uh, and adjust things on right. your own end accordingly. Um, uh, good uh, just kind of concept for anybody to explore. Just take a piece of coffee paper in the wintertime and put it out on the snow. <laughs> right. if you live in a region where there's snow. The snow will be spectrally neutral. The paper will be glowing blue. Mm -hmm. It'll have a blue tint to it compared to anything else. If you've ever seen a receipt fall out of your car in the wintertime, you might have noticed that right away. Yep. Um, and uh, so that's something to be considered. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's a deal breaker, though. I mean, for the cost of a roll of that uh, pipe sealant stuff, you can wrap around the uh, the eraser, which will, again, cost you, what, a dollar? Right, right. And, uh, and then you've got an emergency supply of pipe sealer that you can leave <laughs> in your bathroom in case you ever need it. Okay, at the end of the original article, the, the Lyra article, um, they offered two kinds of reasons why this was a really good solution for white balance. And I'm, I'm going to ignore the first one because I don't, I don't, it's, you've tested it. This isn't that big a deal. But the second one, I, I wanted you to kind of tell me what it was that you're taking away from it because I wasn't sure I understood their point. And so I'm going to read to you what the point was here and, and you tell me what you think. So it says the higher the values in the digital capture are, the lower the noise is. That's why having a target with a higher diffuse reflection factor as a white balance reference ensures the readings used by the click on neutral method are less contaminated by noise, less skewed, and generally more accurate. And that statement confuses me like crazy. So what okay. do you take away from that, Don? It, it means that if something is brighter, 
then it's further away from the the, the noise floor in yeah. in the camera okay. and and this is something that uh, you you may have discussed on this podcast before it is fairly common knowledge and generally accepted that if something is like 80% uh, towards brightness then you will have the utmost level of quality and detail within that versus something that's in you know like the the, the 10 or 20% right. of brightness that's sort of hiding in the shadows so what they're saying is that there would be less noise because the tape is brighter and non-reflective, I should mention that as well. Uh, one of the reasons why they're do, uh, using it is because it's not going to give you specular reflections and things like that that would mess with things. Um, so it's bright, and thereby it should give a, a better reading based on noise. But I don't necessarily buy that because whenever you're sampling an area for um, for white balance, it's not just choosing one pixel. It's going to choose an array of pixels. Right. And maybe if you're shooting at ISO 25,600 on a camera that's five years old, um, then, yeah, white balance might be hard to pick out of the noise. But I don't think that's as big of a play as they're making it out to be. And if that's what your photo is looking like, white balance is kind of the least of your problems. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So um, in case listeners didn't haven't heard me talk about in the past, white balance is something I pay little attention to myself. <laughs> um, I don't do auto white balance anymore. I did. That was my approach uh, when I when I was getting started, mainly because of ignorance, um, not not because I was choosing to do that. That's how the camera came set. And I didn't know any better. And so uh, so I used auto white balance. Um then, but the the challenge I have with that is the challenge I have with a lot of different uh, camera settings and, and technical details that that we tend to talk about is I really want to have the control over it and I want to make sure it's consistent from shot to shot. As I'm out uh, taking it, whatever I'm I'm shooting because uh, I, I shoot a lot of variety of things. Um, as I'm going to go post-process them and, and I played around with composition or I played around with uh, model positioning or whatever differences there might be between the shots, I don't want to have to deal with exposure differences and white balance differences and, and other things that are, are might be involved from shot to shot. So I like taking control over it. And even if it's wrong, at least they're all wrong the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, if you're shooting raw, you can fix one and right, copy and paste right. that setting to everything that's else. That's right. That's right. Now, in my in my workflow, I rarely do a series of things like a bunch of images from a portraits uh, session or right. a wedding or what have you. Uh, but the only thing that would be consistent would be my snowf uh, snowflake work. But it's all lit by the same flash. So the, those settings are static and it's a controlled environment and I'm not worried about it. But when I've got an image and I'm fine tuning it uh, with those, you know, maybe three or four hours of attention on every image. And sometimes it's just really fiddly stuff like dodging and burning really slightly here and there to guide your eye around the image. Right, right. Some cl uh, cloning cleanup work. It's nothing that's uh, too... Uh, uh, demonstrably changing to the image. It's not transformative. It's just enhancing. And one of those things that I'll pay attention to right from the very get-go um, is uh, the, the color temperature and the color tint. And I just want to make sure that those uh, hit the mark as best as possible. And there's a couple of tricks uh, to, to just kind of get a feel for that. Um, one is to, uh, if you're in uh, Lightroom, uh, or I, you can do it in Photoshop too, you just right-click on 
the uh, the mat around the image itself, and you can change it from black, different shades of gray, uh, to a custom setting that I usually set to white, um, so that I can you know uh, fiddle around and just see um, does it look good against a brighter neutral gray. Mm-hmm. I don't edit the image that way overall, uh, but if it's a really dark gray, which is I think the default setting, uh, it'll be harder to find a proper neutral reference point to the image to help you establish right. what that neutral point should be. Um, and extra bonus to that, when I'm sending something off to the printer, uh, I set that background to white, which gives me an idea about what the white point of the print is. Because oftentimes, even in a calibrated monitor environment, uh, you might be thinking uh, the print is going to come out okay because it's a transmitted light display versus a reflected light print. And the transmitted light display, your eyes adapt to much more easily than the print. So if you set it to white, you'll get a proper white point reference for printing, adjust your brightness accordingly, and then set it back to whatever the default is. Right, right. Yeah, it, and even if I get, if I set it to what it should be, if, if I, I've done it with the target so that I've had that reference point and I can go, you know, put the dropper on the target and get what should be perfect white balance, I usually don't like it. <laughs> I usually don't like the result. I'm like, no, I like it. I like more, uh, more yellow and I like more uh, magenta than what perfect white balance is. Now, that, that's my thing. You know, that's how I like to do it. Not everyone's going to feel that way. Some people might really like what the the perfect white balance is going to show them. Uh, but I, I kind of... It, it's why I'm not really that worried about having a target anymore because I, I generally... I, I like to eye it myself. I use the calibrated display. And I've just become accustomed to it being... Uh, reasonable in my own workflow but everyone kind of needs to figure out what's going to work for them how they're going to want to set this you made a great point about what the white balance means to you and um, you know what if you're in a house that has all warm incandescent light bulbs sure Um, or if you're looking at a gallery uh, that has paintings on the wall or even somebody painting in their studio. Uh, I did artwork reproduction um, for a uh, very large set of uh, paintings that were depicting the events of World War One, uh, called uh, Project Remembrance. And if anybody's curious, you can see that artwork at projectremembrance.ca. And um, uh, to, to get the colors accurate, um, the lights that I was using to photograph it were a different temperature than the lights that the artist was using to paint it because I needed to have my special lights um, that had to have polarizing filters on them in order to cut out reflections. Um, and so if anybody's never done artwork photography, um, put polarizing sheets in front of your lights, uh, put them 45 degrees to the camera and put a polarizing filter on your lens and rotate it until all the reflections disappear. Uh, works like magic, but I had to use different lights for that. Um, And so when I color calibrated everything to the nines with my color checker and everything, it didn't match the artist's intent because it was a different light source that they were painting under. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I mean, I kind of understood that I would have to modify the colors to some degree. So I went back to the studio with the final images and, uh, and we uh, adjusted them to taste. But it's art, right? This right. is... Even if you're a photojournalist, white balance doesn't necessarily like you don't need to have it's not in the code of ethics to have your white balance to uh, correct as a photojournalist. If you're doing it for the pure sake of it being art and it looks good to you, even though the numbers don't match up to saying, hey, this is perfect, then it looks good to you. Right. And I think that I think that's the end of the story. Right. Right. 
All right, good. I, I think we covered that pretty well too. I'm, I'm so glad. Like I said, you were the perfect guy to come and talk with me about this. That was good. I, I think we would have struggled with that topic uh, with uh, with some others. Okay, let's move on to the doodads of the week. So this is the part where we share um, the things that uh, that we're using, the stuff that uh, that we want to recommend to listeners. Uh, we get a lot of uh, new listeners all the time, and so I'm going to repeat one because I've, I've recommended this one before. And it's a it's an app uh, available on iOS and Android called Photo Pills, and it's about ten bucks to buy the app. And I love this app. Um, like I said, I shoot all kinds of different stuff. I every I, I try to shoot everything I can. I just enjoy trying to tackle every type of photography figure out my cameras to, to even capture it. I fail miserably at first and then I figure it out. It's all fun. It's, it's what I love. And PhotoPills has inside of it in this app, a whole bunch of calculators that help me as I encounter those different kind of shooting situations to give me some guidance on settings to use. Uh, there's some really cool virtual reality stuff in it to help you find different, uh, things in the night sky that you want you might want to shoot or figure out when is sunset and when is sunrise and and blue hour gold hour times and and it even can consider the the landscape around you as you're doing that it's really cool it's a very, very powerful cool. app it's kind of tough to figure out how to use <laughs> i'll be i'll be honest there that there's a bit of a learning curve as you go in there uh, if you're a brand new photographer uh, you might want to hold off a bit or get it and and go f- use it as a guide to learning photography and uh, uh, figure out what the terms mean that it's talking about in there. But uh, any tool that uh, any tool that you can use to to, to learn and accelerate that learning process. Uh, I mean, uh, you and I, uh, Jeff, we both stumbled around in the dark and come across solutions, and we we're so glad that we stumbled across the right thing because we could have been, you know, uh, on on the wrong path or just going nowhere, spinning our wheels for a long time. Having an app to guide you through some of oh, that, oh yeah, it's incredible. It, it's a huge asset. Yeah, it's really great, and they they update it continuously. Like there's as astrological things happen, there's updates to to help you plan around those things. Uh, as they find new calculator methods that um, that can help you, uh, like keeping stars uh, from elongating in your photos, they they're adding that, and it's it's really great. I just I love that tool. It's a, a phenomenal asset, and I think every photographer should go get this app. So there's my doodad. What do you have for us, Don? Okay, well, this one requires you to take it apart and put it back together. <laughs> As uh, I would expect from Don. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, th- this is uh, actually a story that I had covered uh, a couple of weeks ago on Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, a lens that uh, I think it was um, somebody in, in Eastern Europe. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. I'll have to look it up and I'll get you the link to that article that okay. I had read. Uh, recommended um, that if you want to get like crazy soap bubble bokeh and like massive artistically intended distortion in a lens, you need to look no farther uh, than the uh, Zenitar 50mm f2 lens, uh, which currently you can buy from former Soviet states for around 50 bucks. Um, and, uh, you know, I compare that to other lenses that are eh, like $800. Let's just throw a number out there for some of them that are really well known for their soap bubble bokeh and other things like that. Would prices go up even higher than that? I figured, why not just on a lark, get this little lens, follow the instructions to take it apart and put it back together. So what you have to do um, is there's um, uh, a, a little, you have to buy a caliper as well if you don't have one already, or take a hammer and a very fine screwdriver to tap out a little ring on the back to help take the rear element out, and then shake it somewhat vigorously 
and then other pieces will fall out uh, afterwards, and you will find a, um, uh, a, a a lens group. I think there's two lenses in it, and you've got to take that out, put it in backwards, and put the rear le- uh, the rear lens element back in the proper way. So you take some of the internal optics and you invert them, uh, and it just makes magic. Um, I was using it for the first time earlier today, and uh, we had some uh, some fog uh, overnight, and so there was dew over everything. And my goodness, the bokeh is just stunning. The issue is um, the in-focus areas, maybe not so much. Um, <laughs> so you, you have to choose your subject fairly carefully. Uh, the, the background details and everything are wonderful. Maybe you'll just use this lens to run around and make textures that you can apply in uh, post sure, to other yeah. things. Right. Um, and uh, if you get the right subject and get it framed nicely against uh, uh, against the uh, background water droplets or uh, facets of a mineral or a crystal, stone always work really well just poke holes in a piece of paper and backlight it too i mean there's so many different ways for you to get interesting bokeh and then use that as a component within uh within this uh you know kind of weird frankenstein lens but for 50 bucks um you know people are spending a lot on these lamography art lenses these days um and i was just kind of happy to come across one that it did take me about 15 minutes of time to take it apart i couldn't find my calipers so i had to take a hammer uh to the lens not the first time i've had to do that either by the way uh (laughs) Uh, and, uh, yeah, put it back together and it works. It's just a fun little tool that if you're just not in a creative groove, if you've, if you're just not feeling inspired, throw this on your camera and that will change. And then you need an adapter for, for cameras. Yeah, it's a, it's an M42 mount, so you can get an adapter to virtually any other mount imaginable from that one. And those adapters cost like five bucks. Yeah. And then it was going to be uh, all manual. Yep. Yeah, uh, so it's yeah. it's got a manual aperture. Although uh, if you want the proper bokeh effect, the aperture has to be wide open. Uh, and and as is true of any of the lenses that have a similar bokeh feel, uh, shooting wide open is best. And uh, you know manual focus. So yeah. uh, what I would typically do, because I'm using it more for macro work, I'd be physically moving the camera forward and backward to achieve focus. And the focus on the lens itself is only to establish what magnification I want the subject to have. I see. Very cool. Very cool. All right. As I would expect from Don. <laughs> That's great. All right. So uh, final reminders here is we're going to close out the show, masterphotographypodcast.com. That's where you're going to find the show notes for the episode. And you're going to want to go hit that up. We have our Facebook group, Master Photography Podcast. You can search for that in, in uh, Facebook and join that community. We have lots of photographers that are always talking about things over there. So if you're not in that group, you're missing out. You can find my work at jsharmanphotos.com. And my other podcast is phototacopodcast.com. And um, you can find me on Facebook, Harmon Jeff, Twitter, I'm Harmon underscore Jeff. That stupid guy took Harmon Jeff. And Instagram, I'm at Harmon Jeff. Don, um, your podcast, Photo Geek Weekly, where do they find that show? Simply at photogeekweekly.com. And you can also find a link to that and all of my social media presences and a portfolio of my work at doncom.ca. That's D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. And uh, if you like this discussion, you want to carry it forward. If you have any questions uh, or rebuttals to what we've talked about, I'm always open to these conversations. So my contact information is everywhere. Excellent. I have to say my favorite combo that you've had on the show, because you you have a, a 
you try to have different co-pilots there in the in the show regularly but my favorite is steve brazel i have to <laughs> yes steve brazel is is such a wonderful guy because not only does he have like a proper radio voice with yes uh, yes a very good choice of vocabulary and uh he gets excited about the the same stuff and that energy carries through, through the conversation but he can talk the talk he can so so it's so much fun to bounce ideas off of him and new thoughts come back to me it's like well i didn't think of that uh so i'll, I'll have to have him back on more often i'll let him know uh that uh, you think highly of it yeah yeah I, I love it too that he's like a, he's a network engineer by trade so this photography wasn't his main thing and uh you know he does phenomenal work concert photography it's great really impressive stuff but yeah i love it when you two go and talk go geek out on, on photo geek weekly it's great we'll do it again <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks so much for joining me don and we'll uh, catch you all again in another seven days